Hello, and welcome to the podcast of the Believer's Bible Class, a part of the historic First Baptist Church located in downtown Dallas, Texas. Each week, we share the Bible lesson from our longtime teacher, Doug Brady. Doug has studied the biblical scriptures throughout his life and is knowledgeable in both ancient Greek and Hebrew, which makes his explanations of scripture all the more interesting and most certainly all the more accurate. Professionally, Doug is an attorney, although he considers his Bible teaching as his godly profession. We are in a major study of the book of Daniel, and today we continue to look in the second chapter of Daniel and the dream that Nebuchadnezzar has and the powerful message it passed along to him. Now, you will certainly want to have the second chapter of Daniel open in front of you as you listen, as there is so much material to digest. The Believer's Bible Class is part of the First Baptist Church of Dallas, Texas. Our class meets every Sunday morning at 9.15 in Lavorne Hall, located on the lower level of the new Worship Center building. We would count it a privilege to welcome you to our class if you are in the area. Well, I see Doug is at the podium ready to begin the lesson. Here now is our longtime teacher and our good friend, Doug Brady. We're in our study of Daniel. We're in the second chapter. It's amazing to me how much is in this second chapter. The last time, 15 years ago, whenever it was when I taught Daniel, I only used two lessons. And we're like four or five uh, because of some things. There is something in the material today that I still don't understand. I'm praying that the Lord will give me an understanding of it over this next week, and we'll touch on it when we talk about the stone next week. But pray for me that the Lord will give me understanding. Uh, I'm going to pass right by it when we're reading it, and some of you may catch it and some of you won't, but we'll just go from there. Now, we're going to start in, in verse 31, where Daniel tells the dream, and we will go over that in just a second. But before we do, let's pray. Father... I pray this morning that you will fill me with your Holy Spirit and that he will be the teacher and not me, that he will empower and control me. I won't say anything you don't want said. If there's something that I haven't let you put in my mind so far this week, I pray that you will put it in this morning. I pray that you will keep distractions from the room and that we will be able to understand your purposes and how you work in the history of our world, so that we can be confident that you're still working in the world. Even though so many things seem to be going wrong, so many times evil seems to win, and righteousness seems never to, I pray that you show us that you are in control, and that you have a purpose in everything that's happening, and you're going to bring it about just the way you intend to. And Father, I pray, of course, if it's your will, that you will come back for us this year. And that this, we will be the end of the terminal generation. I pray this in the name of your son, Jesus, and the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. Starting in verse 31, let's review the dream quickly. You, O king, were looking, and behold, there was a single great statue. That statue, which was large and of exceeding uh, brightness, was standing in front of you, and its appearance was terrifying. And the head of that statue was made of fine gold, its breasts and its arms of silver, 
its belly and its flanks of bronze, its loins and its legs of iron, and its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. Now you notice I read that as I think it should be best translated. And you continued looking until a stone was cut out without hands, and it struck the statute on its feet, and clay, of feet of iron and clay, and crushed them. And then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed all at the same time and became like chaff from the summer uh, threshing floors. And wind carried them away so that not a trace of them was found. But the stone that struck the, stone, the statue became a great and a mighty mountain and filled the whole earth. So Daniel was required to do something that was basically impossible and that was to tell king what the king's dream was. Nobody could do that. Now, have you ever thought about this a second? You know the dream by what we read. We read the dream. How did God tell it to him? Was it like a conversational? Or did he let him see the dream in a vision? Now, we aren't told, but I think it's important to know, I think Daniel saw the vision because he's able to describe it so accurately. Maybe God didn't do that and God just helped him to describe it because God obviously knew exactly what was there. But whatever, we aren't told how Daniel knew it. We also aren't told exactly how Daniel was explaining the interpretation. All we know is it was given to him and Daniel thanked God profusely before he went into the king. He related the dream. Immediately, of course, the king recognized, that's my dream. All right, now I want the interpretation. He's probably moving up on the edge of his seat so that he can hear. And we're going to start a small passage at a time. The interpretation is this. First, Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon are the head of gold. In Daniel, in the verse 36, it says, this was the dream. Now we will tell you its interpretation before the king. Now, do you notice that? pronoun? We. First person plural. Now, who is the antecedent of we? Now, it says that Daniel was taken in by Arioch to the king. It doesn't say anything about Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. It's either those four or it's Daniel and his God, Yahweh. I think it's the latter. You can make your own choices, but he is, what is he doing? He's not there to bring any honor to men. That's why he says we, meaning me and my God, who is the one who revealed this to me. You, O king, are the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the strength, and the glory. Now that word kingdom could be translated sovereignty, but I, I like the concept here of kingdom. Powers, the strength, and the glory and wherever the sons of men dwell, or the beasts of the field, or the birds of the sky, he has given them into your hand and caused you to rule over them all. You are the head of gold. Now, in those times, the king was the kingdom, especially with Babylon. Everything that happened went through Nebuchadnezzar. He was in control of everything. There was nothing in control of Nebuchadnezzar except himself. And of course, God, he doesn't realize that at this point, but you need to understand that this is his kingdom. 
Now, God's interpretation tells us the first kingdom is Babylon. There's no question about it. Babylon was literally full of gold. When we get to the point where Nebuchadnezzar stands up there on his palace and says, look at Babylon that I have created by my glory and my splendor. We're going to talk about what what he was looking at and the gold that was there. But let me tell you, there are massive amounts of gold. The amount of gold it's going to take to build that statue today would be, well, I I figured it at $35 an ounce, which was a long time ago. But, you know, we're talking billions of dollars. Now, what, $1,700 an ounce, something like that. I always defer to David. He's my expert on gold. But, you know, no telling the, the trillions of dollars, probably, to build that statue. There's a debate whether it was hollow on the inside or not. I tend to think it wasn't. But be that as it may, it's much more. They're casting that statue in furnace. And it's much more difficult to cast something that's hollow than is solid, if you think about that. Now, this kingdom would not be Nebuchadnezzar's unless God had given it to him. And Daniel's going to make that very clear. So now he goes to this next kingdom, starting in verse... We're just going to read this because it's only half a verse, 39a. After you, there will arise another kingdom inferior to you. Now, the interpretation does not state what that kingdom is, the nation. We need to think about that for just a second. It doesn't tell us who it is. But Daniel tells us later. One of the things that you need to understand, that we all need to understand because it gets attacked, is the Bible is, for the most part, a self-interpreting book. If you just give it a little time, it will tell you the interpretation. Sometime more time than others. You know, what was the purpose of the dream that Joseph had of the sun, the moon, and the 12 stars. Well, they tell us when you get to Revelation chapter 12 from Genesis, that's a long wait, so to speak. But here, all you have to do is go to chapter 8, and it will make it very clear that this is the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians. I put a footnote there in your notes so you can see the exact passage there where it says it. Now, this has been attacked in a great deal, this one passage that's gonna, that it says this next part. It says, another kingdom will arise inferior to you. They say, wait, Persia is inferior to Babylon? Who took over Babylon? Persia, Medes, and the Persians. They're inferior. They, they won. In addition to that, look at the map of what Babylonia's empire And the Medo-Persian Empire, Medo-Persian, much bigger, much more. Well, this word inferior, it's both, I think, in the King James and in the New American Standard. If you look at its root meaning, it doesn't say inferior. It means like earthly. What it's saying and what it's really communicating is this. There is a difference between the control and the power of Babylon and of Persia. Do you remember the story of Darius when he comes in and he, he makes this law that you can't, you can't pray to anybody else but me for 30 days? Now, when he finds out it's, it's Daniel who's going to have to be thrown in the lion's den, he doesn't want that at all. Daniel's extremely valuable asset. 
But what does it say? The people remind him. That's according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be changed. The king there, subject to the laws. You get to Alexander, he's not even the same power that Nebuchadnezzar had. You'll get to Rome, it's even more. And so that's the concept here of lesser or inferior. It's control of the main king or leader. And you need to see that. And that's, that's what that's speaking of. Now, you notice this kingdom has two parts. It's got two arms, right? And it shows two parts in the kingdom. One Medes, one Persians. Now, Perry, I'm going to ask you a question. If you were going to have to pick up something very heavy, and you could only do it with one hand, which hand would you pick? You'd pick your left. Why? You're left-handed. And that hand is, or that arm and hand is stronger. In the same way, with the Medes and the Persians, one is stronger because everyone has a dominant arm and hand. The Persians were stronger than the Medes, and so that's this concept of two arms. You notice that for the most part, when you get to your legs, they tend to be the same strength. Now, yeah, you have one that you kick with maybe more often if you were kicking, playing soccer or something like that or kickball. But the fact is the legs are much more equal in strength as opposed to the arms. So that's the point here that I want you to see as, as it's uh, going through. Now, the next part is in verse 29b where it says, then another third kingdom of bronze, which will rule over all the earth. Now, this third kingdom, again, it doesn't tell us who it is. But you look at your footnotes again, and it makes it very clear in Daniel chapter 8, verses 21 and 22, that the goat there, which is the third kingdom, is Greece. Now, people will say, wait a second. Greece wasn't anything when Daniel was writing this. How could he know it's Greece? Well, that's because Daniel wasn't the only one writing this. They got to be able to say, well, how can the Holy Spirit know that it was Greece? And then we say, you fool, of course he can because he's God. But of course, they don't want to accept that. That's their whole point of attacking because this is not divinely inspired in their mind. But now he spends a little more time on this fourth kingdom, the loins and legs of iron, and then the feet of iron and clay. Starting in verse 40, then there will be a fourth kingdom as strong as iron. Inasmuch as iron crushes and shatters all things, so like iron that breaks in pieces, it will crush and break all these in pieces. And the kingdom is stronger than any of the preceding kingdoms. Well, do we know anything about Rome? Yes, it was very strong. And you know, they, one of the things they brought to the table was the Pax Romana, Roman peace. But now, how did they have everybody peace? Because everybody was so happy and they just would all get along? No. If you tried to mess with Rome, they would crush you. I want you to think about it. In 70 AD, they said, we've had it with you Jews. And they came in and they started killing. They killed over a million Jews. They completely flattened Jerusalem and especially the temple. Even to the point where they'd say, we're going to show you because you've rebelled, we don't even want you existing in the future. And every pregnant woman they would find, they would slit 
her uterus open, pull out her fetus, and strangle it to death in front of her eyes before they killed her. Now, that's pretty darn barbaric. You know, we don't do things barbaric like that. We put her to sleep while we're killing her baby. But, well, it's still inside of her. But, you know, then, of course, this kingdom divides into two parts. You have Rome on the west, Constantinople on the east, and it's picturing that. And then it comes to the feet, and it's representing a kingdom that appears to be associated with the legs and yet has some changes. Notice, this is a separate kingdom, these feet, but before it, the metal changes. Here, only half of the metal changes. It's still iron, but mixed with clay. So it's some kind of continuation. And there's all kinds of rumors as to what that could be today, these ten kingdoms. Used to be they thought, well, this is European Union. Some people now say, oh, no, these are ten tech giants. Uh, you know, who knows what it is. But we'll see what it says here. It says, in that you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it will be a divided kingdom. But it will have in it the toughness as iron, inasmuch as you saw iron mixed with the common clay. As the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of pottery, so some of the kingdom will be strong and some of it will be brittle or subject to breaking. And in that you saw the iron mixed with common clay, they will combine with one another in the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another, even as iron does not combine with pottery. What is it talking about? Well, the first thing we have to recognize is that we have, after the fall of the Roman Empire, we have not seen this comeback of Rome. It's not happened yet. Now, there's people who want to say, you know, well, there was the Holy Roman Catholic Church, and it was really, it was something, my Western civilization professor used to call it the ghost that sat on the remains uh, of the Roman Empire. But we need to understand that there is something coming. And in Daniel chapter 11, it's going to make it much more clear to us what is going on. And we're not going to spend as much time talking about that today as we're going to go on. But we see as these kingdoms, five kingdoms come, as they change from head to foot, they decrease in value and reflectivity, but they increase in hardness. And these kingdoms... They degenerate in morality as time goes on. Uh, they increase in control of their subjects and influence over their lives, and they end up with a greater force and weaker government. And, and that's just the way uh, this goes. And so we begin to see that God has told Nebuchadnezzar his plan till his coming back. His plan from 603 B.C. all the way Hopefully, 2021. Now, maybe it's 2041 or 61 or whenever it's going to be. But he's told him his plan. Why would he tell Nebuchadnezzar? Why not tell Daniel or Ezekiel? I think it's important for us to see. God is showing us something here. What is he showing us? I can use whoever I want to accomplish my purposes. I can do that. Well, this dream is a perfect picture of his purposes. 
What do you mean his purposes? These are just the kingdoms that are going to come. He's told us about them because he's seen them. He has foreknowledge. What do you mean is, now, some people don't like this, but I have a rule. It's, I call it my first rule of biblical interpretation. Candace doesn't like it. Susan doesn't like it. God never does anything for the heck of it. There's always purpose. There's always reasons. The only question is, do you get to know the purpose or not? Or do you get to know some of the purposes, but not all of the purposes? I think that's usually it. You get to know some, but not all. Because there's just too many. And you wouldn't understand a bunch of them if he told them to you anyway. So the purpose of the dream, God wants to demonstrate to Daniel and his readers his knowledge and his plan and his ability to control what's going to happen. God set it up, set up what is going to happen based upon his foreknowledge and his desire to accomplish certain things. Now, what is he trying to accomplish? Can we know? Yes, we can. We're in a much better position than Daniel to understand. In fact, you after today will understand the purpose of God much better than Daniel did at the time. Let's talk about that because I think it's important to see. What was the purpose of bringing Babylon into a position of world rulership from the Jewish point of view? That is, world rulership from the Jewish point of view. What was God's purpose? Well, let's start in Jeremiah chapter 20, verse 6, where it says, Then Pashur the priest, this was the high priest at the time, the son of Amur, who was the chief officer in the house of the Lord, heard Jeremiah prophesying these, prophesying these things. And Pashur had Jeremiah the prophet beaten and put in stocks where, that were at the upper Benjamin gate, uh, which was by the house of the Lord. So what's happening in this time period? If you speak out for God what he's told you to say, you're going to be beaten and put in stocks. If that's your decision to make, how do you make it? Well, let's go on. On the next day, when Pashur released Jeremiah from the stocks, Jeremiah said to him, Pashur is not the name the Lord has called you, but Migor, Misaviv. For thus says the Lord, behold, I'm going to make you a terror to yourself and to all your friends. And while your eyes look on, they will fall by the sword of their enemies. So I will give over all Judah to the hand of the king of Babylon, and he will carry them away as exiles to Babylon, and he will slay them with the sword. And I will also give over all the wealth of this city, all its produce and all its costly things, even the treasures of the kings of Judah, I will give over to the hands of their enemies, and they will plunder them and take them away and bring them to Babylon. And you, Peshur, all who live in your house will go into captivity, and you will enter Babylon, and you will die there, and you will be buried there, you and all your friends to whom you have falsely prophesied. Is there anybody here who would like to have a prophet say that to some people in our country today? Yes. Well, yes, but we're not going to talk about that. We're going to talk about this. I want you to see. Did that happen? Yes, it happened. What was the first purpose that God used Nebuchadnezzar for? To punish Judah. Now, why did Judah need to be punished? What particular kind of sin? Idol worship or idolatry. What did, he, what did the scripture say? Remember, 
the Jewish people had to wait 400 years for the sins of the Amorites to become full. And then they were sent in and they were told to kill every man, woman, child, animal, anything to do with the Amorites. Kill them all. Destroy them. Burn it out. Then he says, your sin, Israel, is now greater than that of the Amorites. Now, don't get confused. Not Amalekites. Amorites. Yes. That's what I wanted to do because I knew you would if I didn't. So anyway, I want you to see that. So idol worship. Now, 70 years they're in Babylon. When they come back, and after they come back, do the Jewish people ever fall into idolatry again? No. No. They've sinned. And they became all about a work-oriented religion. And they became pharisaical, but no longer idols. You check and see. That was something that God used Nebuchadnezzar to do in their lives and hearts. Now, I'm not talking about, you know, like worshiping money. I'm talking about idol worship in particular. Now, okay, if that's Babylon, what was God's purpose with Persia? Well, we've touched on that before, but let's look what Isaiah said. This was back in in like 730 B.C. It is I who says of Cyrus... Now, was Cyrus in existence then? Were were the Medes and the Persians joined together then? Was Persia weak and and, uh, even fighting with Assyria? Yes. And Assyria was in control of Persia before Babylon took control of it. It is I who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and I will perform all my desire, and he will perform all my desire, and he declares of Jerusalem, she will be rebuilt, And of the temple, your foundation will be laid. And thus says the Lord to Cyrus, his anointed, whom I have taken by the right hand to subdue nations before him and to loose the loins of kings, to open doors before him so that gates will not be shut. And I will go before you and make the rough places smooth. And I will shatter the doors of bronze and cut through their iron bars. And I will give the treasures of darkness and hidden wealth of secret places so that you may know that it is I, Yahweh, the Elohim of Israel, who calls you by your name for the sake of Jacob, my my servant and Israel, my chosen one. I have also called you by your name. And I have given you a title of honor, though you have not known me. I am Yahweh, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no Elohim, and I will gird you, though you have not known me. That's unbelievable. Now, do you think that anyone in the, per- pardon me, in the Babylonian Empire had access to the scrolls of Jeremiah and Isaiah? Who? Daniel. Do you think... Anyone showed that passage in Isaiah to Cyrus? I'm convinced it did. Just like the portion, say, in chapter 8 was shown by the high priest to Alexander when he came to attack Jerusalem. And those people are amazed when they read it. Now, look at Ezra chapter 1, verse 1 through 4. Now, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, In order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing saying, thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, Yahweh, the God of heaven. Wait a second. Who's saying Yahweh, the Elohim of heaven? Cyrus is. 
Yahweh, the Elohim of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever here is among you of all of his people, may his God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is Elohim, who is in Jerusalem. Every survivor, at whatever place he may live, let the men of that place support him with silver and gold, with goods and cattle, together with a free will offering for the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. They were the kingdom that freed the Jews and let them go home. Why'd they need to go home? Because they needed to build the temple. Why'd they need to build the temple? Because the Messiah was coming and it needed to be prepared for him. It was all part of God's purposes. Why did God want Israel not to, or Judah not to worship idols anymore? Because the Messiah was coming and he didn't want that filthy sin there. And so he used the strength of Babylon to stop it. And they helped people rebuild the city, and, and they even returned the contents of the temple. If you'd read farther in, in Ezra, you would see they have a, an accounting of all the things that Nebuchadnezzar took, and they gave it back to them. All right? You see the purpose for Babylon. You see the purpose for Persia. Now, what's the next kingdom? The bronze abdomen and flanks. That's Greece. What was God's purpose for Greece? They didn't have anything to do with anything. In fact, they caused a lot of problems for Israel, did they not? Yeah, they did. Oh, but it doesn't matter how wicked they are. God has a reason and a purpose. So first, what God did, he came and he raised up a man by the name of Alexander. And his father, he and his father started uniting the Greek city-states, and that was finished under Alexander, after his father had already uh, passed away. But the problem was, every Greek city-state spoke a little different dialect of Greek. Now, think about this as a problem. What's the foremost thing in Alexander's mind? Warriors. I want armies. But if I'm sending out a command, and they can't understand the command, or they can get it wrong... Well, that ruins everything because communication is key in battle. So he got together. You see, his father had hand-selected a tutor for Alexander. You may have heard of this tutor before. His name is Aristotle. And he and Aristotle came up with the plan of putting together a language that was common to all Greeks. And in fact, they called it Koine Greek, Common Greek. Now, Alexander, being a military man... Did he want one word to be able to have a bunch of different meanings? Did he want phrases to be able to interpret it a number of different ways? No. It's, they created one of the most scientific languages. Now, you hear scientific, you think, what, they weren't talking about scientific stuff. No, scientific language means precision. It was one of the most precise and easy to express you didn't have, it wasn't difficult to express ideas, languages that the world has ever seen. Now, the, one of the goals of Alexander and the Grecian Empire was Hellenization. What is Hellenization? I could have made a joke on that, a play on words, but I'm not going to. But the concept is we want to make everybody Greeks. And so they want to Hellenize the whole world. And they come over and they start this Hellenization process everywhere and 
The Greek language became known throughout the world. It was the language of merchants. It was the language for military. It was just used throughout the whole world. Everybody knew it. And you say, now, wait a second. What's the purpose of that if when the Messiah comes, it's not going to be the Greeks who are running this show. It's going to be the Romans. And they speak Latin. They don't speak Greek. Well, we're just going to have to get to that. But you see, the Greeks made the world used to a one-world system of government. You see, before, they would always divide things up. Don't you remember when the Persians took over Babylon? What happened? Was there a king of Babylon? Yeah. Darius the Mede was appointed king in charge of Babylon. And then he wrote a part to Cyrus. And so those kind of things happened. But the Greece had a centralized system until Alexander passed away. Now, what book could be written in Greek, the most precise language we've ever seen? Well, don't say the Bible. The New Testament. The New Testament. That's what we have, and it's amazing. So then comes Rome. For what purpose could God have Rome? He's already established a one-world government here. He's established this wonderful language. Well... Rome created the means for the gospel to travel, and that's what he wanted. Over 400 years of strong control. We've already talked about Roman peace and how uh, rebellions were kept down, so there wasn't anything to interfere with commerce and communication. Roman law was established, and it was the law for everybody. You know, one of the key facets of Roman law, who got special privileges? Roman citizens. Ah, who was a Roman citizen? Paul was. And so he got to use the privilege of citizenship a number of times. They also build, built and put together extremely uh, effective communication systems for sending a word uh, across the empire. They built a transportation system we know as Roman roads, some, many of which are still standing, so that people could travel all over. And as a result... The gospel of Jesus Christ was able to spread throughout the world with the Greek language. The Romans said, we're not going to have all these other plebeians learn Latin. Latin is the language just for Romans. Who do you think designed that plan? God. He wanted Greek to be the language, not Latin. Nobody told that to the Holy Roman Catholic Church. But be that as it may, they went on, and as a result... That spread throughout the world, and you begin to see his wonderful purposes that God had planned. Were there other purposes? I'm sure there were. I'm just not smart enough to figure them out. But the fact is, we begin to see what God is doing. Roman law, which is kind of Roman peace. Yes, sir. Well, the magicians and the astrologers were in Babylon, and they were shown to be frauds and charlatans because they couldn't answer the king. And they had been trying to con the king. And if you look in chapter, he was really mad and he wanted to kill them all. Daniel saved them. Now, you ask yourself, why would a man of God want to save those kind of people and keep them from dying? Because God loved them. And he wanted a chance for Daniel to influence them for good. And did those that came from those magicians, you see, they changed things. Because those magicians were of black arts and satanic. But the 
magi, the wise men that came from really Daniel taking over, because he took over all of that, were all there for his library and could read and knew when the Messiah was going to come better than Jews did. But let's move on, because I've got a question. Is this only a one-time event that God would do something like this? God does these things all the time? Let's talk about a perfect example that I found. A perfect example. I wasn't alive in 1949. Some of you may have been. But prior to that, the Japanese, along with the Germans and the Italians, decided they wanted to take over the world. Now, does Daniel have anything to say about that? Yeah, there's not going to be another world kingdom until the, the feet and toes come. So whoever tries to think they can take over the world, they're going to fail unless they are the feet and the toes. But they thought they could, and Japan attacked China, and Japan took over a major part of China for a while and destroyed a lot of part of China, which allowed a man who was really quite wicked and evil and who believed in communism by the name of Mao Zedong to bring a revolution in his country, a communist revolution, revolution and start China down the road to communism. And he came in. But when he came into China, things were in terrible shape. What do I mean by that? Well, Mao Zedong had a plan that he wanted to build a socialist utopia and to make plans for the socialist man to be able to have everything that he needs. And so he started looking, and the first thing he looked at was the population in China spoke over 1,600 different languages and dialects in 1949. That's not going to work if he's going to take China into the modern world and be able to communicate with his people. So he made a decision. You could say an executive decision. We in China will speak Mandarin. What is the national language of China today? Mandarin. In fact, it's interesting, that wasn't even his native tongue. He didn't pick his language. He picked the one that most people spoke. And so now, almost all Chinese speak in Mandarin. Now, the next thing. He looked at the alphabet, if you'd call it an alphabet. They had like 1,500 to 1,600 picture symbols to represent things. Does anybody know what the picture symbol they had for trouble was? Besides Julie. Two women, Two women under the same roof. Really? That, that's what it is. But he said, we can't have that many. So he decreased it down to about, I don't know, I, I misstated. It's 50,000 to 60,000 picture characters. He, he reduced it down to 1,600. Now, most all the Chinese people could learn to read and write. And mass written communications such as newspapers, flyers, political treatises could all be disseminated throughout the country. And he had everybody learn uh, Mandarin and to learn this new or reduced alphabet. It wasn't new, it was just reduced. But he also recognized that the communication system had to be improved. So to start with, he started having printing presses built and disseminated all across the country, stalled everywhere, so that the propaganda of the CCP would be available to and read by the socialist man, and other forms of communication were also improved. So that was his third major, major change. The fourth 
And final one he wanted to make was the transportation system. You see, to get to central China many times, you had to travel dirt trails, either on foot or by burrow. It could take you uh, three months to get somewhere. Roads and railroads were given priority. They built roads and railroads all throughout China so that transportation could be greatly increased. Now, did all these changes benefit the communist plan for China? Yes, they did. Did they have any effect on Christianity? In 1949, there were about 1,500 Christians in China. 15, a lot of them had been killed by the Japanese, mostly. But 1,500. About 10 years ago, a, a friend of mine by the name of Mike Carmichael came back from China, and he said, Doug, there is probably 100 million believers in the house church. The benefits that Mao Zedong brought to communist China for the socialist man were used by God to spread his gospel throughout China. Now, there's probably not 100 to be because China is trying to kill them as fast as they can. But the fact is, God has a purpose and uses wicked people to accomplish his purpose so that he can show you, I can use the one who's the most opposed to me to accomplish my will because I am Yahweh, Elohim, the Lord God. And that's, that's what Daniel is trying to explain to Nebuchadnezzar. Now let's look at this dream back uh, for just a moment. See, this dream served as a divine warning to Nebuchadnezzar that even though you're great and powerful and you appear to have no opposition, your kingdom not going to last. It will come to an end. You see, what you did to my people, I didn't like. Taking a baby out of a mother's womb and strangle it for her eyes. You'll pay for that. Did God make Babylon pay for that? Absolutely. Will he make America pay for that? Absolutely. And it's a shame when it's your country that has to pay. But we are deserving. Secondly, this dream provided consolation to Daniel and his friends. The Babylonian Empire that had destroyed their country, destroyed their city, most importantly destroyed their temple, and been so barbarous, one day they would come to an end, and, and Israel's God would ultimately triumph. The dream says that. And finally, Nebuchadnezzar is now introduced for the first time to God. No one's introduced him yet, and so God came and introduced himself. And Nebuchadnezzar is going to see over and over and over whatever he tries to do, he can't beat God. And God's going to beat him into submission until he finally says, there is only one God, and that's the one I want to serve. And he becomes God's man. I am convinced when the rapture comes and the tribulation's over, you will get, if you want to, to personally meet Nebuchadnezzar because he will be the same place that you are. Now, I want you to something to further notice. Daniel made certain that it was clear that he credited his God with both the dream's content and its interpretation. You see, for Daniel to have done otherwise would be for him to rob God of his honor and his glory. When a man is selected by God and put in a place to do God's work, it will be a place of admiration. There will be people who will want to follow him. If you rob God's glory, you will pay. God doesn't share his glory with anyone. Gary. Go back to Deuteronomy to find that 
Daniel doesn't take credit because God tells him you can't take credit for this because what God is doing, he's doing it from the covenant of the father. He made his fathers. With, with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He talked about Deuteronomy 29-29 where it says in there that the secret things belong to God, the things revealed belong to us and to our sons to obey them. So it'll, just in the short, short verse, this verse travels all the way to the very end. And he's revealed these things to Daniel. He was doing what you see at the vision is that his people... His people in obedience to the people. It seems to me every time you see these visions, it has something to do with God's people. And that's what Deuteronomy talks about. I agree. And Deuteronomy is, I think you would agree with me, an important book. When Jesus went out into the uh, wilderness to be attacked by Satan, what was the main sword he was carrying in his scabbard? Deuteronomy. If your spiritual health required based on your knowledge of Deuteronomy, how well would you do? But now, let me ask you this. I want you to, to see this. Does Satan always have a comeback? Does not Satan try to take every gift that God gives to us and corrupt it? Now, what's going to happen in the next chapter? Nebuchadnezzar is going to build a statue. But this statue is going to be made of what metal? Is it going to have four metals? All gold. And who was the head of gold? Nebuchadnezzar. And he's going to say, you have to worship me. So he takes the gift of this dream that God gave him, revealing all this to him, and Satan, using him, subverts it, corrupts it, tries to misuse it, and to cause death of God's men. That's not the only time this has happened in the history that I want to show you as God's working. I want you to see two other times that this has happened, just so you can see how this is used. Because this is a principle, the gift that God gives, Satan can use to destroy a man. This is a strategy he's long employed. Do you remember the children of Israel were forced to travel through the wilderness for 40 years? That's the picture of the statue. I think some people want to say the statue looks like Bell. I think the, the, the statue looked like Nebuchadnezzar. No, the statue looked like the statue that he saw in his dream. All right? So let's go on to the next one. Do you remember that? The people of Israel were, were going through, through the wilderness, and they disobeyed. And God sent fiery serpents to attack them. And men and women of Israel were dying when they got bit. There was no cure. So they turned back to God. And they asked him, they plead with him to save them. And so he gives Moses a plan. I want you to make a bronze servant. Put it on a staff with a crossbar. And put it up on the hill. And if you look at that serpent, believing that God will heal you, he will. Let me ask you something. Did God just put that serpent on the hill that way just to save the people? did he have some other purpose? He wanted to place a picture. What was the picture? Someone was going to be put on a cross like that, put up on a hill, and be the source of salvation for mankind. If they would just believe, just like the people in the, if you just believe that you'll be healed, when you look at it, you will. And the same thing. So what happens? Well, 
you know, if I had something like that, I would keep it. I wouldn't destroy it. I would want it to always remind me of what God did. But Satan had other plans. And go to 2 Kings 18. Now it came about in the third year of Hoshea, the son of Ella, king of Israel, that Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, became king. And he was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Avi, the daughter of Zechariah. And he did right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father David had done. And he removed the high places, and he broke down the sacred pillars and cut down the Asherah. So that's the worship of Baal and the Asherah. And he also broke in pieces the bronze servant that Moses had made. Why would he do that? That's a wonderful thing to remind the people. Satan had taken over. Why? Listen to what it says. For until those days, the sons of Israel burned incense to it. And what did they call it, David? Do you remember? Nahushtan. They called it Nahushtan, the thing of brass. And they were worshiping it like a god. I've been wondering, why did he pick this instead of gold or another metal? All I can say, well, the only thing I know for certain is because that's what God told him. But why would God do that? Maybe it's because he didn't want any gold or silver being used in this because he had plans for it in the tabernacle. So, and, and bronze tends to, if you don't keep it polished, it, it tends to dull. Gold doesn't really. Silver doesn't. Well, silver does. Yeah. Well. Let's look at another time. In Judges 8, 22, Gideon had just won a great battle. He had defeated 135,000. Now, you're not going to like this. I thought he said men from Midian and Amalekites. The Amalekites were attacking. Gideon put together an army. And God said, we got a serious problem here. Gideon says, yeah, I know. What are we going to do? And he says, you got too many men. You tell every one of them who's scared. Actually, it was 32,000, not 35. Every one of them scared to go home. And 22,000 went home. They left him with 10. He said, wait, 135,000, 10? What are we going to do? God? Oh, you got too many men. Finally, he cut him down to 300. And he said, now, Gideon, do you trust me? Gideon's thinking, I don't know if I do or not. And he said, okay, if you don't, you go down into their camp. You just take your inner servant, sneak into the camp. And he sneaks down into the Amalekites' camp, and they're, they got a little fire going, and there's two guys there. And one guy says, I had a dream. Last night, it was a dream that a barley loaf come rolling into the camp and just destroyed everything, turned everything upside down. And another guy said, well, I know what that means. That's the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. Faith now changes. He gets down to his knees right in the middle of that fire and starts worshiping the Lord God, gets his men, and they destroy him, absolutely destroy him. And they have a great victory, 300 beating 135,000. Now, afterwards, he says, I want you to, well, let me read it to you, what he says. Then the man of Israel said to Gideon, rule over us, both you and your son, and also your son's son, for you have delivered us from the hand of Midian and those evil Amalekites. No, wait, it doesn't say that. But, but Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, uh, nor shall my son rule over you. Yahweh shall rule over you. Yet Gideon said to them, I would request of you 
that each of you give me an earring from his spoil. For they had gold earrings because they were Ishmaelites. And we're not going to say anything about whether people are wearing gold earrings in their ears today. And they said, we will surely give them. So they spread out a garment and every one of them threw an earring there into the spoil. And the weight of the gold earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold. Besides the crescent ornament pendants and the purple robes were of the kings of Midian. And beside the neckbands were on their camels' necks. Now, he built something. It's called an ephod. Gideon's golden ephod. And it looks something like this. And then we have to turn to verse 27. And it says, the gold, Gideon made it into an ephod. He placed it in his city of Ophrah. And all Israel played the harlot with it there, so it became a snare to Gideon and his household. The gift of God allowed to be corrupted by Satan. So before we finish today, let's look at just a couple of things real quickly. I want you to consider the two individuals here in this passage. First, Nebuchadnezzar, the world's man. The man at his zenith. Uh, no one could get more powerful. No one could get more wealthy. No one could have more women. No one could have a greater army. No one could have better horses. No one could have better anything. Proud, arrogant, paranoid, and impetuous. Fearing no one, to, subject to angry outbursts. On the other hand, there's Daniel. God's man. Humble. Willing to shift the credit away from himself. Content with being a servant and fearing his God. Which side of that equation do we want to be on? But you know, when you see this kind of thing happen, when God really works, you find out one thing. There's only room for praise. There's no room for pride. In 36, you mentioned that uh, in the dream, uh, Daniel says, now we uh, tell the interpretation. Yes. You were saying that you thought that he would say he and God. I don't believe that. He had never put himself in the level with God. Okay, but who is the we standing for then? It's the three that's in the background. You think he's, he's excluding himself and saying just Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah? I don't think he's going to deflect that to a man. I think he's trying to deflect it to God. Uh, let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for the time that we could spend together today. I thank you so much for just the ability to study your scripture and to learn it. Help us, Father, to understand that you always have a purpose of what you're doing in our lives. And it may seem to us that everything's going wrong. Nothing is going right. And that you should be inter interceding and, and uh, dealing with wicked people, and yet you're not. Help us to understand, Father, that you have a purpose and that you're going to do things according to your time schedule and according to your plan, and we have to learn to trust you. We have to learn to know that you know what's best. Help us to understand, though, that you've given us a responsibility, and that is to spiritually reproduce as often and as quickly and efficiently as we can. Help us to be ready to share our faith. If we're concerned about how to do that, I pray that you'll help us to endeavor to learn to Practice our weapons to have the sword sharp and ready to use so that when you call upon us, we'll be able to answer. Answer in a way that you will, that brings glory to you and that pleases you. I pray these things in Jesus' name, in the power of his blood. Amen. Amen.